You ever heard of Matthew Vaughn? He's a decent dude. Does some decent work. Uh, Kick-Ass was him. I actually really didn't like Kick-Ass, but that's just a preference thing. He also did X-Men First Class, which is, by memory, probably my favorite X-Men film. Just off the top of my head, you know. I only mention that because, well, well, he's obviously done some other works and has continued to do the X-Men, or excuse me, the... St uh, God, not the Statesman, the Kingsman franchise after this point. If I was to describe this particular movie, it feels like a merger between X-Men vs. Class and Kick-Ass. No, seriously, it's got kind of that epic, grandiose sort of a feel, the big music, the big set pieces, you know, and the epic moments and the great action. And it's also got the, I'm going to call it crudeness, I don't know what else to call that. The coarseness that brings it down to... Well, I'd normally call it a relatable level, but I'm not actually sure if I could say that in this case. It certainly does add some dirt to the overall work. Whether that's a good or a bad thing is up to you and your preference. Now, I haven't actually watched this film before because I just wasn't all that interested. Um, the, I, I've had some exposure to it, but never actually gotten around to it. <laughs> But this is uh, well, this is an interesting work, isn't it? We've got... Oh, by the way, he also was a producer on Fanforstic. I don't blame him for that one, though. It's It's got a lot of language and a lot of violence, but it's also got a sophistication to it and is one of the better actual bits of cinemata cinematography I've seen probably this year. Like, we're covering a lot of classics this year. You know, I'm looking at the list here, which I happen to have up here. And we've covered Fight Club, which did some brilliant stuff. We covered Sunshine, which did some amazing stuff. Um, you know, later on, we're covering Apocalypse Now, which had some absolutely amazing usage and editing. Blah, 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 right? But I still think this might edge all of those out on sheer usage of the camera. It's so rare that I can praise something like that, but here we are. Also, we've got an interesting cast. We've got Samuel Jackson, Mark Strong, Michael Kang, Sophia Bortella, which I hope I'm pronouncing that right, Mark Hamill, and, of course, Jack Davenport. All of these people, who are all awesome, even though some of them only have relatively bit roles, really add to the, for lack of a better word to put it, pedigree of the film. Notably geek pedigree, if you're paying attention, which I suppose makes sense, since that very much feels what this film is going for. It's not trying to be a high... You know, classical, going down through the ages as one of the great works of cinematic history. It's trying to be a fun Bond film. How many of you ever like like Bond films? Honest question. I know quite a few people only really enjoy the Craig verse, for lack of a better term. But whenever I ask that question on stream, for example, I get a bevel of different answers, which is always kind of awesome. Obviously, I tend to prefer Connery because. Don't know how to finish that sentence, but there's certainly a thing uh, that Bond. You know, we call it a Bond film, and we know what the archetype of a Bond film means. But Bond has been going through this weird trip all over the place as uh, during the course of its adventures as a franchise. That being said, I think this might actually be my new favorite Bond film, legitimately. It's just a specific brand. It, it's In video games terms, this feels like playing one of the Yakuza games. The actual plot is deadly serious, and the character drama is good. 
and the character interactions are good, and then it's absolute nonsense in such a ridiculously hammy, over-the-top way that I can't help but cheer. What would otherwise be one of the most starkly horrific scenes of the entire work is effectively played for laughs and done very, very, very well. I really would love to know how many months or more they spent planning that scene. I'm referring to the church scene, by the way. Anywho, <clears throat> so we see the beginning. The dad dies. Well, that's... that's... <laughs> Can you imagine playing a role that basically shows up for five seconds in a film? Like, as an actor, you can't, you can't really do much with that, right? Oh, sure, your character is kind of the impetus for the whole plot, but... You, the real-life person playing the character, well, it's just like, well, you show up for a weekend, film your role, and then you go home with an extra, you know, 50 bucks or whatever. But then, then he is offered a favor. That's interesting to me. Not financial support, not any kind of guarantee, just, just a favor. What's interesting is a favor, there's an old concept behind favors, and I don't even know what it's properly called, but it boils down to the value of a favor depends entirely on what you use it for. And that's the value of a favor. It's like currency. You know, you, you have a, a third-party good that you can utilize in exchange for basically whatever. And there are many things that can be utilized in exchange for. What I find interesting is all over the years of him growing up, he never thought to use this once, despite the fact that he did know the code phrase and that he did actually have it on him pretty much at all times, probably because it was from his dad and he idolized his dad and blah, blah, blah. This, of course, leads to Dean. I'd like to talk about Dean as little as possible, if that's okay, because he's a wife-abusing, disgusting scumbag who deserves to die. I am actually legitimately upset that of all the people who survived the apocalypse, he is one of them. So anyways, he's crude and coarse and awful and horrible. Doesn't even take care of his child, adopted or otherwise. We see right off the bat that Eggsy does actually care about the kid. And his mom, of course. But I mean, he doesn't care about their mom, right? But I just point that out because it does show... Eggsy's character arc in one scene. He cares. That is the simplest and easiest way to explain that. He has sentimentality. Keep that in mind, okay? So, we find out... Uh, first, so then we see Valentine. One of the classic hallmarks of a Bond villain is that they've got a gimmick or some kind of thing going that helps distinguish them, right? You know, that's, that's generally that approach. His This is actually probably one of the more amusing Bond villains I've ever seen. He's got no stomach for violence, which he exposits. He also uses violence without even the tiniest bit of hesitation. Because why would he? He doesn't care. It's all just thing. He's also a brilliant, uh, you know, he works in computing. And he is a billionaire thanks to his work in computing. Which I actually think is a character bit, which I'll talk more about later. Then there's the fact that he's got that lisp. Oh, and he's played by Samuel L. Jackson. All of these combine to make a surprisingly interesting villain. I have a really strange feeling that he doesn't believe in his own cause as much as many of the people he has convinced. Like later on, if I could jump forward for a second here, Michael Caine, and I'll talk about the scene when we get there, his character, Arthur. I actually believe Arthur believes in that cause more than he does. For him, this is just... Well, 
It's just another uh, problem to solve, right? Troubleshooting. Classic stuff. Moving on. So we introduced the Rage Plague early on. Cute. And now we decide to go ahead and... <laughs> we get to see the other side of Eggsy's character. That he is a classic rebel. Uh, you might even say a rebel without a cause. Because he just likes to thumb his nose at people who consider themselves better than him. Now, I point that out because, like most people like him, he's totally cool with people who are totally cool with him. It's the uppity brats who tend to push him off. Now, maybe it's because of the fact that we're effectively following a chav when it comes to the story. No insult intended, by the way. But it's interesting how much of this story boils down to classism. In fact, now that I look at that list, a lot of the movies we've been covering this year cover classism. Huh. Regardless. I might shuffle this before that, now that I'm thinking about that. Moving on. So, okay. First he has to, to set out the tires, and then he gets caught, and blah, blah, blah. Where did the phone come from? He just picks it out of nowhere, but it wasn't there in the previous scene. Anyways, he calls in the favor, and this leads to Galahad, who was obviously upset about him, but, you know, whatever. You can do whatever you want with your, your life. By the way, um, the way he portrays himself is so wonderfully British. And again, no insult intended. The British stereotype here outside of the British Isles tends to be very simple, very proper, very prim, very polite, and very crude. No, seriously, that's the stereotype. You know, it just completely blase a bit things like sex or cussing or violence, things that would be normally considered crude. And so he is so wonderfully unflinching. He's just blase. Look, I just want to enjoy my drink. Okay, well, now I have to beat the crap out of all of you. And he does effortlessly beat the crap out of all of them. By the way, the guy pulls a freaking gun on him. What? I mean, I know that the upperclassmen tend to be a little bit more elitist in how they think they can get away with things, but what the crap, dude? You assault someone, then he starts beating the crap out of you, so you pull a gun on him? I know, I know. They're evil. <laughs> Which leads me, of course, to my next comment. What I have in my notes referred to as shaky cam, but I've already scratched that out. I decided to look it up. This is actually undercranking, to be specific. Overcranking is a form of trying to do slow motion, which they actually do several of that throughout the film as well. But the undercranking is a regular camera style he uses to make things look a little bit different. The footage basically looks just a little bit sped up as they're racing through certain scenes in order to add to the hectic nature of some of the fight scenes. It's... It's a stylistic choice, and I'm not sure if I like it or dislike it, but it certainly sets the film apart in terms of visuals. And there's that camera work again. They also like to do a lot of very careful camera work, especially with regards to the fight scenes and choreography thereof, which I'll cover more about that later. So, after the shiv, after the gun, after the knockout thing, he says, Hey, Eggsy, don't tell anyone. I promise. Okay. He chooses to believe him, by which I mean he puts a bug on him to track him and make sure that he's going to verify if he does. Then the guy, the Eggsy, immediately gets attacked by Dean. You know, I really wish, I've already complained about Dean, I really wish that Galahad, Harry, had actually decided to press charges with the evidence that he has about the abusive jackass and just sent him off to rot. But let's not go into that. Again, I don't want to talk about Dean. What I do want to talk about is how he's brought in as his recruit. So, 
we get an explanation for exactly how the king's been working. Oh, I'm sorry, I jumped over it because it's really important. Did you catch it? Eggsy kept his promise. That's interesting, isn't it? Because he had nothing to gain from it, and he had no way of knowing he was being bugged. In short, it's kind of a test, but it's one of the. It, it, unlike the other tests later, he had no idea he was being tested, and yet he still passed. I think, personally, that's probably the best indicator of his character right there. Amongst all the various showcasings it is. He has nothing whatsoever to gain from not telling Dean what's going on, or to you know supplicate to him or whatever, but instead he just keeps quiet about it. Why? Because he promised. He swore. It's nice to see someone with that kind of morality. Truthfully. So... Explanation on what the Kingsmen are. They're the Philosopher's Legacy. That's for like five of you. The idea is sound, and I kind of like it. And we do a lot of things in this film, so I'm going to be jumping around a little bit too, where we jump back and forth in exposition, because this is a setup film. This is intended to be the beginning of a franchise, and thankfully it's sold well enough so that they will actually get their chance at franchise. We've already had one sequel, and they're already working on another one, which... It's supposed to come out later the year I'm recording this, but to my knowledge it's being pushed back yet again, so we'll see if it's even out by the time that this video goes live. In any case, um, we get the explanation, we get the thing, we, we get the kids, we get the MIB scene. This is very Men in Black. <laughs> no, again, no judgment. The classism comes into display yet again. We've got the upper kids who start talking about which colleges you've been to. So which college did you go to? Now, I have spoken ill of colleges many, many times here in the States because in many cases they are garbage institutions that don't teach you anything in exchange for a ridiculous sum of money. However, it is worth noting that that is not true for all industries or all uh, practices. There's plenty of degrees that are actually worth a damn and indeed very useful and can get some very good information out of them. So that's cool. H however, there's also the really prestigious colleges. Oh, you know the ones. The ones that are part of old money, old families. You shuffle in the people who are really good, or the people who are really connected into there, and now they are known as being part of that connected network. It's like a badge, right? All of a sudden, simply by having this, which I can't seem to find it on my lapel, simply by having this, all of a sudden, now everyone knows, oh, you're in, you're in, you're in the crowd. Awesome. Naturally, he didn't go to any of those because he's not in the crowd. He simply just has a, you know, his own merits and his own skill system. And he pulled out of several successful possible ventures because of his mother and his concern for her. We also meet uh, Roxy and Amelia. I want to point out something really briefly. Rox and Amelia are the only ones who call him Eggsy. Correctly, because that's his freaking name. Everyone else calls him Eggy. Even when they're being mildly polite to him, they still call him Eggy. Cute. So we cut back and forth a few times. Uh, there's this wonderful bit where he's talking to the President of the United States. It's a good scene. First of all, he mentions that money won't save us, which is true. But second of all, he mentions how, well, the mere fact that he is having a private meeting with the President of the United States, well, that says everything, isn't it? Because now, all of a sudden, we know that he has the kind of influence and connections to have a private meeting with the President of the United States. And this is... Obviously, we won't show him interacting with everyone, but this kind of shows the kind of reach he has and the kind of network he is building. 
<laughs> uh, so the water just kind of slowly sleep, seeps in. That was really cool, by the way. They could have had it flooding in, big action sequence. No, they went for the slow seeping in. Makes it more insidious, more terrifying in its own way. Also, they show Amelia dying. It took a while for them to co cover back to that. Of course, Amelia's death was fully faked. The whole thing was fully faked, which I'll talk more about later. What I find most interesting is, as uh, Merlin, best character in the movie, as Merlin points out, they all do fail because none of them work together whatsoever. One of them says, let's try the door, and then tries the wall. The other one says, let's use this random technique in order to get some air. Well, from a toilet, sure. The others do nothing, and that's basically the extent of it. And you got her killed, oh no, she's not dead. <clears throat> I want to mention something really quick. I love the fashion in this film. I actually do have a bit of a fashion sense, believe it or not. I don't get to practice it because I don't have the money or the body in order to actually be able to wear the kind of fashion that I really like. So... It's one of the reasons I like playing fashion souls, you know, being able to customize and characterize my characters across however many video games that let you do that. It's fun, and I'm sure I'm not the only person who spent hours or days or weeks just designing various cosmetic outfits across various games. Tell me I'm not alone, guys, please. Oh, God. I... <clears throat> Naturally, they have to all choose a puppy. Aw, they're so cute. And he chooses the little, little, uh, <clears throat> the bulldog, or the pit, pit bull, or whatever he calls it. <sighs> yeah, no, that's a pug. Very British dog, if I might be so bold. I wonder if that's a holdover from the MIB vibes we got going on. It's probably not, but he gets the little thing, and there's this great one where he's jogging, and the puppy goes, boop, boop, boop. It, it is code as he's jogging, because, you know, the weight of it. That was just really cute. I had to comment on it. Moving on. <clears throat> we do a lot of vertical transitions, and there's a series of what is effectively three montages going on at the same time. As Harry's recovering... Uh, I can't think of his freaking name all of a sudden. Uh, Eggsy. Eggsy is... <laughs> Eggsy is training. And, of course, uh, our good, good friend Valentine is running around continuing to push his evil plot. And we've got full coverage. Hmm. You know... <laughs> uh, did I mention I haven't seen this film in its entirety before? I, I knew some of the broad strokes. I'm aware of pieces of the second film, but I've never actually sat down and watched this film before. And that's important because I want you to know why this made me laugh so much. See, a long time ago I considered one of the things I would do in the course of taking over the world, and one of the things would be to provide free internet and cellular coverage for everyone. I'm not admitting anything. I just want to be very clear about that. What I do want to admit is only one person actually tries to help Roxy in the, the dive. And of course, only one person really tries to have teamwork. One of you doesn't have a shoot. You don't know which one it is. The funny thing is, you'd think it's an interesting logic puzzle question, but the truth is, it's actually not all that difficult. It's just, do exactly what Eggsy said. No, really, the first thing that occurred to me was, alright, everyone link up, and then start pulling your shoots one at a time in order to make sure that you're safe, right? Whoever's not safe will be, you know, still connected to someone. And if you get to the point where the second-to-last person pulls and has a shoot, 
and there's one last person left, then they just hold on to the person with the shoot, because obviously they're the one who doesn't have one, right? I mean, this was a fake test, and he did have the extra shoot, but once again, there's no reason to suspect that, is there? Also, this stunt is actually extremely dangerous, and probably could have gotten people actually killed. To be completely blunt, I am legitimately astonished no one dies over the course of these various stunts. I really am. Anywho. So, <clears throat> I love the quirks. I do. Big, super, you know, rich, ultra-rich, what does he serve? McDonald's. But what actually adds to it more is Gazelle, who I haven't commented on yet, but she's awesome. She's actually probably one of my favorite Bond henchmen ever. She's in the background, and she's, like, trying to make the McDonald's palatable. Like, you could see her in the background, like, trying to get a little dip of the ketchup and... Smear it over here and get a little dollop of this and putting the burger and the fries in just such a way. Trying to make it something other than just McDonald's. It's it's wonderful to watch. Of course, the subtext, the incredibly obvious subtext of the scene, is right on display. And this is also when Matthew Vaughn basically turns to the camera and says, I don't like the new Bonds. They're too serious. I like the old ones, the classics, the big megalomaniacal villains. And of course, both of them say, I always wanted to be the such and such that I am currently the opposite of. Yeah. What's most amusing about that is if you were to think about their mentalities, it wouldn't surprise me if both of them think of themselves as the one that they wanted to be, not the one that they are. Kingsman is a society that operates above governmental interaction. They have influence and power and connections. They are effectively in charge in many, many ways. And they are very well connected, and they have tons of money and funding. They are effectively Bond villains, it's just they're working for the forces of good. Well, with one exception I'll talk about later. This leads me to Valentine, who is... He's not the big, cool, suave guy, but you notice his clothing changes in basically every scene is, I love the fashion. I'm not even joking. I'm not even joking. I love the fashion. But... Because you look at him and you think, oh, he's just a punk. No, the thought. You can tell... It's, anybody who pays attention to that sort of thing, you can tell very serious thought was put into his wardrobe at every step of the way. And by the way, love the suits. Oh, I wish I could have a good bespoke suit. Oh, my God. Don't mis mistake me. This is good. I like this. You know, this is, I think, my fourth or fifth coat for this show that I've gotten overall, and it works quite well for me. It's a, it's a London Fog. Wonderful thing. But, um... I still would much rather have a bespoke suit, oh my gosh. Except those cost around $2,000, and I don't have that kind of money. I'm getting off topic. Point being, Valentine, he's got the suit, he's got the high tech, he's got the gizmos, he's got the get... He thinks he's, he's Bond. He is portraying himself as Bond, saving the world from the evil villains. By the way, I looked it up. A 45 Lafitte, Lafitte, I don't know how they pronounce it, would be about $3,000 for a bottle. And a Chateau Yakim, Yakim, I don't remember how you pronounce it. Uh, I couldn't find figures for a 37, but a 33 would cost $1,700. So then we have a scene where they go to try and uh, get in close with this one target. Naturally, because they are idiots, all three of them decide to try and get in good with her at the exact same time. Now, naturally, this is part of the test, since this is actually a loyalty test, but what I find absolutely hysterical is how they dissect each other's approaches. So first, Charlie sits down, 
and he does the belittling thing. And then so then Roxy sits down and she points out what he's doing. This leads to Eggsy showing up. And some of you know that I am... Uh, one of my hobbies, one of the things that I find absolutely fascinating, is human interaction. The the how and the why and the the methodology we use to convey things. It, it's an absolutely astonishing subject. I've I've studied humans. Not an alien, I swear. I've studied humans for basically my entire life, since I was a child. It is just an utterly fascinating topic for me. And I really like how they actually dissect into specific pieces. So what he's doing is he's positing an opinion and then getting everyone else involved. So you are now invested in giving your opinion in order to try and show that the attention should be focused back on you. And you can math out and, and block out a lot of conversations in exactly the manner they do. It's just rare that most people do. I totally don't do that every day. Shut up. I'm, I'm human, I swear. So... It's a great scene, and I found myself just gushing about it. But of course, oh yeah, by the way, I've used the opinion opener thing before. But of course, naturally, they do the railroad test. This is when the movie starts to lose me a little bit. The problem is they're all fake-outs. Every single one of the tests is a fake-out. Every one of them. At a certain point, pattern recognition is going to jump in there and be like, Hey, so, uh, you, uh, and it's going to fall apart because, you know, it's a freaking, it's a test. They're not going to actually run you over with the train, right? That is why you don't let people know that there is a safety net. I'm actually okay with there being a safety net because, you know, murdering people during training is, well, that's the thing that the villains would do. But at the same time, letting them know there's a safety net, that it completely psychologically changes the outcome. Although, if we're to ignore that for a moment, I am very much amused that Eggsy, once again, with nothing to benefit from it, refused to sell people out. Why would he? He is legitimately loyal. Charlie sells him out immediately. No, dude, it's Arthur, and it's great, I'll tell you everything about it. Blah, 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 blah. Oh, I'm going to tell my family about this. That's not the first time I've brought up my family, by the way. Did I mention I'm used to connected to old money? Oh, Chauncey, the chocolate icing. Sorry, I, I'll try not to do that voice anymore. <clears throat> so they get some time. He goes, Harry, basically in advance, says, here, let's get a suit set up for you. This leads to a couple of good scenes. Really good stuff, actually. Character stuff, serious stuff, which, given the Yakuza nature, it's like I said, it, it just bounces back and forth. I've talked many times, if I can segue, I've talked many times about how usually movies should pick a lane. And I stand by that statement because the overwhelming majority of creative people can't make that work. And remember, it's not just down to one person. You have to have the visual director on board. You have to have the cinematographer on board. You have to have the music composer. You have to have the music editor and the sound designer and the sound supervisor and the cameraman and the actual uh, the people in the editing booth, of which there are probably quite a few, and then the special effects people. And there's so many people that need to all be on board, roped into making the same consistent tone for a film, right? This is actually one of the reasons uh, good directors, like legitimately good directors, get so much credit. Because a really good director isn't just there on camera telling actors how to act. He's at every stage. He's doing every part of the things. Peter Jackson's probably my favorite example of this. But, I mean, you can name just about any of the greats and they do the same thing. They are involved in the editing. They are involved in the processing. They are involved in the sound design. They're involved in the music design. They're involved in the composition. They're involved in the writing. They are involved at every step to try and maintain that consistent tone. Which brings me to my point. The reason I use the Yakuza games as an example for that 
is because there's actually a lot of games, shows, books, and movies that try to be one tone and another tone at the same time and fail. That's the commonality. This is why I pointed out when it doesn't happen, because it's unusual to have a work which actually manages to blend the two seamlessly and have something excellent. Uh, we will be covering a film, looks like later this year, look at my list, that, ha that does this dual-tone thing as well. And it is hard to pull off, so kudos are absolutely in, fa in favor here. But this is my point. For all the silly wackiness and bondness, there is still serious character stuff going on under the hood here. Um, Eggsy and his connection with Harry is easily the emotional core of the entire work. And Eggsy and his connections to everyone else, he is definitively the central main character. It's almost a shame, because I think following Roxy might have been slightly more interesting. But the point is, we are following his story because everyone in this story is someone who is connected to him. I know that sounds so strange, but let me put it a different way. He's the central pillar. Everything else is built around or connected to this central pillar. But every element of the movie rotates around him. With me? So his bits with Harry are excellent. He put, he's got all these newspaper clippings. Why? Because they remind him of what he was doing that day. Because they remind him of the, the, the tales and the victories that he's had. You don't get thank you if you're a Kingsman, just like you don't get a thank you if you're a member of the MIB or Section 31. I'm not dropping that reference just because I'm a geek. I do have a point to be made here. I'm gonna, I've been building up to it if you've been paying attention. But you don't get thanks for the job you do. No one <laughs> praises you. There's no welcoming parade. No one says, oh, you were at the battle of such and such. Thanks for your service. You don't get to go to the grocery store and list your vet card. No, you get nothing except for the fact that you did the right thing. Now, that's actually really, really important, because that is the core element of these kinds of under-the-hood organizations. They are ideological by their nature. They have to be, because they need something to keep everyone on the same track. Now, there's some benefits, of course, and money can certainly serve this, but both benefits and money are, those are surface level. Bunny doesn't buy loyalty. Money buys temporary loyalty, for now. It might buy loyalty in the future, but you cannot buy real loyalty. You can only bring in someone who actually agrees with the cause. An ideological cause is the kind of thing that these organizations have to have in order to continue functioning, in order to get new recruits, in order to maintain as life changes, as things go from tradition into the future. By the way, I love that little tidbit. I saved Margaret Thatcher. Some people might not thank you for that. <clears throat> There's a quote he gives. This is funny. There's a quote he gives. There is nothing noble in being superior to your fellow man. True nobility is in being superior to your former self. Misattributed, by the way, to uh, Hemingway. I looked into that. I was just, it bothered me that Hemingway, who I don't actually like, had wrote such an excellent quote. So I decided to look into it, and lo and behold, that is apparently misattributed to him. It's a quote that's popped up even before his works. Go figure. Look it up. Anyways, <clears throat> we're not sure where it came from. Uh, we, I shouldn't say that. I only spent like 20 minutes looking it up. So anybody wants to do a deep dive on that, feel free. But from what I read, no one's 100% sure where that quote actually originated from. We do have the gizmo scene. No cue, though. Sadness. And 
I, I do love the little tidbit. What about those? And he points to some iPads and says, no, no, the world is caught up with the spy world on that one. Wah, wah. Anywho, Jackson comes out in a bespoke suit, and oh my god, he looks good. I mean, Jackson looks good in general, but damn, he looks good in that suit. If I could talk fashion for just one second, there's a lot of fashion in this film. They actually apparently actually had, actually, 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 they had real uh, tailors and groups and the Kingsman group involved in getting involved with this and actually having some of the suits and the design. And Vaughn himself apparently is a, a hobbyist fashion person like I am. It's just he has money and power so he can do something about it. So there's a lot of fashion in this film. And I really... The, the, the Men's fashion's hard to explain because you could look at someone who's in a suit, right? And you could tell looking at this, this is a few hundred dollar suit. And it is. Like 240, I want to say, something like that. That makes this suit cheap in men's fashion. No, really, it does. I could get something cheaper. I could get probably about an $80, uh, you know, just a blazer, right? And I've actually worn such a blazer on camera before when I wasn't doing as well financially. So I had an $80 blazer. And it, it didn't, it kind of sat wrong and the shoulders were off. And it looked like crap. I hated it. But that's the point. You can tell men's fashion based on how it sits on the man. If any off-the-rack suit is never going to look the same as a bespoke suit. I'm sorry, I should explain that. Bespoke means the materials are specifically tailored and crafted to you. That suit is made for you from scratch. That's what that means. That's why they're so expensive. It may or may not have nicer materials, but it will absolutely be substantially more comfortable and you can always tell by the way it sits on someone, by the way it actually rests on their shoulders, and the way that the coat centers just underneath the chest, and a bunch of other stuff I'm not going to bore you with. I've already probably segued here too much. But my point being, they show off some nice suits in this film, and I just wanted to give credit where credit is due. Anyways. So, come on in. It's Arthur. Hey, come on in here. Let's talk. Let's do stuff. How are things? Shoot the dog. This is, in my opinion, actually the crux of the entire film, although it act the finale actually occurs later, but this this is the, the linchpin. Shoot the dog. He, of course, says, no, I refuse to shoot my cute little pug, and they really drag it out. He's so cute. I don't even like dogs. I wouldn't shoot that dog. It's a blank, of course, because it's all been a blank. This is, like I said, you, you give away the fact that there's a safety net, and you lose a lot of the point. This is also, of course, why they had a puppy, a t you know, why you, they had you take care of a puppy right off the beginning, right off the bat. Get attached to it. Puppies are so such loving, wonderful creatures, of course, right? So now shoot it. Why? You could say it's because of a willingness to follow orders, but I actually don't buy that. Because the theme of the work is far more about caring. Sentimentality has no place in the spy business. Or does it? If all you do is a cold series of calculations in order to determine the most correct outcome in your spy agency that operates without any kind of legislature or oversight or even proper connection to governmental agencies, well, that is um, bad. I'm just going to say it. I think, in my opinion, that is a bad thing. Because 
the ideological core is what helps to make such an organization not be corrupt, not be evil, not descend into what the Kingsmen actually are, Bond villains. I brought up Section 31 earlier. Some of you may know from my Star Trek coverage that I actually believe Section 31 to be a moralistic organization, that they highly do value the ideas of ethically being good and morally being good. They will bypass and bend and break those rules as needed in order to accomplish what needs to be accomplished, but only when needed and how. It's admirable, actually. Because what they want is to protect people, to help, to care. They don't go internally to the Federation and decide to hold up their own people or massacre or, or brutalize or whatever. Instead, they are, well, they're a very Star Trekian kind of approach, aren't they? As opposed to something like, say, the Obsidian Order. Although, interestingly enough, even that analogy is an interesting one. Because even amongst the Obsidian Order, there are people who have sentimentality, who care. I mean, small spoilers, Garak is probably the best example of that. He is a patriot, a true patriot. He really does care about his people, about his culture, about his society. He absolutely wants to do the best he can for it. That is an ideological spy. One who is centered around sentimentality. Being told to shoot your dog without cause or question because you're ordered to? is the exact opposite of that. It is cold calculus and nothing else. And since I'm already talking about this topic, let's go ahead and wrap this up. There's a few more things that happen. Uh, there's the best scene in the movie. <laughs> and, um, which is just a really, really awesome scene. But can I shove that back a little bit? Because I want to talk about this now. When you have an overpopulation problem, for whatever reason, this has happened throughout history, uh, forgive me for the quote, but there's no nice way to bring that number down. It's kind of a mess. But in the cold, calculated nature of how something like Arthur would look at this, what we see is, okay, this is what we have to do. We have to cull. We have to cull the people. We have to remove the population in order to help the planet, in order to start restoring itself. If we don't do it, then it will be done simply by the natural progression of events. So it is so much better in order to have it be a controlled event, have it be something that we are taking care of, in order to make sure that we save the best and the brightest and ensure that there is a future for mankind, rather than just a random apocalypse which who knows whom will survive. That is cold calculus devoid of sentimentality. And it's also wrong. <laughs> I should say it's also incorrect. This is kind of like saying, hmm, so we found a house, got some termites, so what we're going to do is we're going to uh, randomly drop little firecracker bombs which will explode and might catch a few things on fire in a, a city block spread around that house, and hope that we manage to get enough of the termites in order to save the house. The crudeness of his approach, of his design, his culling, is hysterical. What's ironic, well, no, 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 I don't want to get ahead of myself here, but it's, it's such a dumb answer. But, of course, it makes so much sense if all you're thinking about things is in terms of numbers and facts and figures. You're not thinking in terms of people. You don't care about people. 
when everything is cold calculus to you. Why would you? They are simply numbers on a page. There is no reason to care about them. They are an acceptable casualty for the sake of the human race. The simple math lines up. If you must kill a million people, then nine billion live. That is an acceptable loss. But again, the problem is their method is terrible. Because they're ignoring everything else about that equation. About the type of people who would survive that. About the type of pe what they're doing to the infrastructure what they're doing to the economic lines, what they're going to be doing with regards to making sure people still get fed, what they're going to be doing with regards to making sure people still have clean water or running water at all. This is an extremely stupid move. But then again, I suppose I don't expect much more from him. After all, Mr. Valentine is not a people person, is he? How could he ever possibly understand something as mind-bogglingly complex as human society. I don't even understand it, but I do better than him. He's a computer guy. <laughs> Get it? He looks at this like an equation to be solved. Oh, shoot, I got a bug in the system. Okay, how do I fix it? Okay, that didn't work. I'll try this new method. And when this method didn't work, I bet he'd just try something else, and then something else, and then something else. <laughs> Let's rewind a second. Uh, Henry Jackman and Matthew Margeson did the music. They also did some of the music for First Class uh, and the Captain America movie. And I think both of them, although I wasn't able to verify this because it's such a, or part of the Hans Zimmer group, which is there's a whole other thing I've tried to avoid talking about because it's a thing and I don't feel like researching it. But the point is, they do some good music in this work. They have a good, they do a good job of adding epic feel and tone to scenes even when they probably shouldn't have that feeling in order to change the nature of what we're looking at in short they use the music as a tool and the music they use the music very well but especially when it comes to the church scene let's go ahead and talk about it this is the best scene of the film in my opinion bar none and you might think, oh, Laura, you just enjoy seeing horrible human beings getting killed. Well, I absolutely do enjoy that. We here at the Lower Orca have no problem whatsoever with killing Nazis in the face, as I like to say. The fact is, this is... <laughs> it's, it's poetry. So first we have the, the horrible human beings, as previously mentioned. And when Harry gets up to leave, she's like, where are you going? And I, I wish I'd wrote it, wrote it down. He says, oh, excuse me, I am... And he just... He strings together everything they hate into one sentence. And that's me. Toodaloo. Hail Satan. Bye. And they're just like, oh, my God. And then the device gets turned on and he shoots her in the head. And what ensues is one of the best directed, utilized scenes. I, I cannot... If I was to sit down... They should have said a poet. If I was to sit down and really analyze this scene, I'd be here for at least an hour. The sheer amount of craft and attention to detail in that scene is monumental. I watched through it twice. The, I, literally, literally half of this page's notes are about that scene. Just to make sure I remember things. The pseudo one-shot, I think, I think it's actually a fake one-shot, is phenomenal. Because there's several sections where something completely obscures the camera's view, and that would be a convenient way to do an, an edit. Um, but the 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 fact that they have Freebird playing, which actually works wonderfully, um, the 
individual choreography is astonishing. The fact that he is actually getting injured as he is making his way through the group is awesome. The fact that there's constantly five or six battles going on in the background while the camera is mostly following him is awesome. The camera doesn't always follow him. The camera does some wonderful stuff. I decided to write down three of my favorites. So we've got the... Oh my god, what does that say? Uh, the launch shot. So there's this bit where he punches the guy, and then he leaves the frame for a second. Then he punches the guy again as he knocks him down. And, and the guy, who the camera hasn't sh changed off of him, suddenly gets bull rushed and then tossed through the window. There's also a bit with the knife. Uh, I actually counted. There's this uh, guy with the knife, and he manages to, Harry, manages to disarm him and use the knife. And we just, what happens is the camera actually starts following the knife more than Harry or anyone else. And we just watch this knife's journey through nine people. Yes, I counted. <laughs> just, and one time I thought I missed it, and again, I watched through this whole sequence twice. It actually ends up in the other guy's arm towards the end of the scene. But my absolute favorite, and I'm, I'm going to fail at even describing this, is the multiple punches which lead to them being shot out of the window. There's this... It, it, the way that they do these scenes is cinematic poetry. The camera usage, the choreography, the incredible attention to detail, the prop usage, the improvisation in how it is done, the fact that it ends on the guy who is giving the sermon, the fact that it begins on the woman who is being so um, judgmental and dismissive, the nature of how everyone is just freaking out as they're watching it, giving us convenient cutaways, again... Another good way to make this not actually one shot. They do the undercranking thing for several sections of this, but not all of it. Just here and there to help emphasize things. I kind of want to watch the scene again, just, just to absolutely applaud. I cannot imagine how much work and effort went into that scene. It is amazing. Naturally, this then leads to him and his confrontation with Valentine, who says, Sorry, not that kind of spy movie. Bam. There's a little character moment that happens right after that. Oh my god. Oh, I killed him. And she's like, yeah, it felt good, didn't it? No, that felt awful. Ugh. This is part of what I meant earlier. I think Gazelle actually believes in the cause more than he does. Just like I think Arthur believes in the cause more than he does. For him, this is just another solution to another program error he's seeing. And I don't think he actually likes death. There's even this point where she points out, you know, you killed all those people in the church. And he says, no, I didn't. They killed themselves. Ugh. And you can tell how much this is upsetting him. It, it helps to characterize him. It doesn't make him any better. In fact, if anything, it actually makes him worse because of how much effort he is putting into mentally detaching himself from what he's doing, killing millions or billions, depending on how extensive his thing is. So, now we have the finale. Uh, we, we already had the finale. I already talked about that. Uh, I love how on top of the world Merlin is at every stage. I mean, I love Mark Strong in general. What do you want from me? But I love how he is just completely competent, completely on top of things, and completely ready to go at every stage, because of course he freaking is. He's, um, he's Merlin. He's the guy in the chair. And while I tend to enjoy Guy in the Chair uh, characters for uh, some reason, the fact is, 
he does an excellent portrayal of it. He's he's got those. Okay, we're going to get this. We're going to take out this satellite. It's going to give us time. We're going to get in there. Um, Charlie gets in. Charlie gets in, and I want you to pay attention to something because Charlie, if oh my family came in, there's that classism thing again. Of course, him and his old rich family would get into this party of don't worry, we'll be saved. Although there's a price for that salvation. But, you know, we'll get in. It's okay. It's okay. Everyone plays ball. Everyone plays ball. You know, not, not like in Last Samurai. A little bit better than that. Charlie ruins everything. It's entirely possible that the plan would have gone forward essentially without much of a hitch until they hit the biometric scanner. Except for the fact that Charlie ousts them. By total contrast, Roxy saves the world. Now, this is interesting. Roxy stops the big plan. She does the really difficult and terrifying thing, goes up to the top, uh, manages to shoot the missile despite horrifying circumstances, and at the last minute stops the countdown and manages to save everyone. Good job, Roxy. Very, very good job. Then she has to plummet down and, you know, go through some horrible stuff. And the camera doesn't focus on her a lot, which kind of sucks. But one of the interesting things, though is that Eggsy is the one who then, as, as he's dying, he asks her, call my mom, tell her to get the baby in an isolated thing, get away from Dean, get the baby away from her, lock the door, throw away the key. That's some impressive forward thinking, given the, the stress of the circumstance, because what he's thinking about in the, his final moments is saving his mom and his uh, sister, brother? I'm not actually sure. The kid. Saving the kid sentimentality so <laughs> Roxy's efforts because she does get a hold of the mother and she does actually have that conversation actually save both her life and the child's life if the child hadn't been separated by that door the time would have been off and that child would be extremely dead with a butcher cleaver and that's horrible so two points for Roxy good job Eggsy, <laughs> I don't understand why Eggsy is the one who thinks of the idea to just set off the implants, right? You, you'd, I, I actually was, I kept expecting at some point uh, Merlin to be like, yeah, let's just go ahead and set off the implants. This is why I exposited about that earlier. This is why the film has shown that several times. But no, instead it's just... Eggsy, what if you fire them up? Oh, or Eggsy says, oh, what if you fire them up? And they're like, oh, okay, let's go ahead and do this. And what happens, what ensues is the weirdest scene in the entire film. I've actually been aware of this scene, uh, for reasons I'm not going to go into right now. But it really... What? Again, the Yakuza thing. It's kind of horrific, and actually probably one of the more serious scenes in the film, but it's being played over pomp and circumstance while fireworks are coming out of people's heads. The only gore one we see at all is the Prime Minister, who was absolutely willing to sell out the princess. So I haven't mentioned much, because the only thing I had to mention about her and him is this contrast. And this is kind of the interesting aspect of what Valentine has unintentionally done. See, he comes up with this terrible plan to call the population of Earth. His backup side-attached plan successfully calls the population of the Earth. You caught that, right? President, the Joint Chief of Staffs, all the super-rich people at their parties, Parliament, 
all the people who are there at his personal bunker, they're all super dead. All of the people who were very rich or influential and who were totally cool with killing millions or more are dead, as they should be. There are now many gaps and holes in the power structure of the planet. It's not the most elegant solution, but it's a certainly far better one than the plan he actually posited. But wait! It gets better. Because not every rich person or successful person or influential person was okay with the plan. Now, we only see one of them. The princess. But we hear plenty of them. There are plenty of other people in those cells, banging and hollering and held there against their will, because you're going to be part of the New World Order, whether you want to be or not. Which means all the rich, powerful, successful, influential people who are not complete psychopaths, that's an inaccurate term, who are not evil, who are not evil, let's just call it what it is, well, they're still alive, aren't they? They don't have the, the thing, so they don't get ed-banged. It's like finger-banging. It's yeah, finger-bang, bang. And so they're not head-banged, and they're still alive, regardless. Huh. And this, of course, brings that classism thing back into the focus. Because one of the things I like about Kingsman is even though it has a definitive classism thing, it also doesn't. Harry is clearly from upper class, but he's jovial and kind and affable and polite. And frankly, so is Merlin. And actually, there are several people, including the princess I just mentioned. Because the class divide isn't really the point. Whether you were born with a silver spoon or not doesn't change who or what you are. It is you who changes and chooses who and what you are. That's actually probably the biggest actual theme of the work, is that decision to be who and what you are and whether or not you are going to be a cult calculus, like all the people who are dead, or someone who believes in sentimentality, like all the people who are alive. Clever. Now, unfortunately, I haven't actually talked about Gazelle all that much because I don't know what to say about her. She's so cool. Um, the actress who plays her, who I wrote down her name back here on this previous page, which I'm buying time for me to look up, Sophia Bortella. Bortella. She's been in a few other things. She's actually really good. And she's also a professionally trained dancer, and holy crap, it shows. She absolutely sells the Bond henchman thing, right? Because they always got some kind of gimmick. They've got the hat, or they got the jaws. My personal favorite of the old ones. But, you know, they've always got something, right? In her case, she's got her feet, and she is awesome with them. The the deadly nature of it, and how skilled she is, and how she's able to keep up. And it, it, The actual final boss fight is against her, because it usually is, right? You're fighting the super mega powerful individual, not the guy in a suit who's the one actually calling the shots, because he, he can be taken down with one bullet, right? So she does this great stuff, and there's this excellent fight scene, and he manages to poison her with the, the blade. Right at the last minute, also implied romance between him and uh, Valentine, which, or excuse me, her and Valentine, excuse me, uh, which I, I would have actually loved to know more about her character and why she's so on board with this thing. Like I said, she's not bothered by any of those. She's totally cool with killing whoever. I mean, why not, right? She's so happy when she's looking at the monitors. Ha, oh, London, Rio, they're all dying. It's so great. I can't even fake it. I can't even fake it. See, I'm, I would be a terrible actor. Because I can't fake being happy about millions of people dying. I, I could think about something else, maybe. Let's see. Puppies? Puppies. <laughs> There's puppies! <laughs> okay, then I just have to change the words. They're dying! <laughs> see, I can't, I can't do it. I can't do it. Um, uh, this is why I suck as an actor. 
But what sucks even more is that the film kind of, it actually turns into a zombie flick for a bit. You notice that? The rage play goes out and they undercrank the film a little bit more and we have people just killing each other en masse. It's actually really tame compared to some of the stuff that we've seen in this very film. Well, yeah, Gazelle is defeated. This isn't that kind of spy movie. Uh, he gets anal sex for some reason. And finally, the one thing that we all really care about, yeah, the world's saved and the kid is saved. Nice touch, by the way, legitimately. The, it's hard for people to sympathize with millions. It's much easier to sympathize with one. Favorite nephew. Favorite nephew. And so showing the actual threat to the kid by the mother while showing the, the thousands of people murdering each other was a good touch. Because the thousands of people murdering each other is mostly noise. You feel when you see the one mother about to kill her child. That drives it home. So that's good. But of course, that leads me to my overall point. It's nice to save the world. It is. It's a good thing, but it's kind of a distant thing, right? You want some kind of personal comeuppance. If only there was something we could do about Dean. Hey! And we finally, took the whole film to get there, finally have the personal comeuppance against Dean, and I hope he freaking died. But I don't hope this franchise dies. I liked this film. Like I said, this is probably my new favorite Bond film. No question. And I shouldn't say that because I haven't seen most of the Bond films in many years. But this is good stuff. I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts on it. And I look forward to seeing your comments about how terrible and wrong I am. I'll see you next time, guys.